This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Lepstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. My guest is Bill Cushing. He's a poet and a professor of writing in L.A. And he's the author of two collections of poetry, Notes and Letters, Mm -hmm. a celebration of music and poetry. And just recently, you came out with a new collection titled A Former Life. Mm Mm-hmm an overview of two centuries, 60 years in the making. That's an interesting line. Well, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Could you uh, give us some context for that? Well, a lot of it is based on, I mean, one of the, in fact, I think it may be, yeah, it is the opening poem, is one of my earlier poems when I started getting into this form of writing was called A Former Life. And, as I started collecting my work for a full volume, I looked. I said, "Well, geez, this is uh, you know covers the last what? Well, in terms of writing, only about fifteen or twenty years of, of the previous century, and then of course this new century. But the works themselves go back to you know my childhood and you know growing up in New York and living in other places and that kind of thing." So it just seemed like a look back at what my life was, and the former life seemed to fit. Yeah, I really liked that notion. When we were having our email back and forth, it occurred to me that from our current perspective, everything is our former life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm a big believer when I teach. I always talk about the tabula rasa. And I say, yeah, you are the sum total of all your experiences up to this moment, be they good or bad. 
and that's what forms who you are now, but it's all predicated on what's gone on before. And this new collection of poems really reflects a very broad range of experience, it sounds like. And I'm, I'm assuming that you're, you're writing about your own experience. For the most part, yeah. I mean, uh, sometimes I just put myself in somebody else's moment and project. But for the most part, yeah, these are all images that hit me at certain points or, or stayed with me. For example, the dry docks and parades, which is one of the poems in there, came out of when I started school. Of course, I was 37 or 38 when I went back to school formally. And I had worked for the last 15 years mostly in shipyards. And, you know, people were like, well, how did you go from being a shipyard electrician to (laughs) an English major all of a sudden? And so I tried to explain that, you know, to me that work was just absolutely fascinating. And it was, I've always said that that's one of the things I loved about the work was, you know, for a kid, it's, we love building models, and here I was working on full-scale ones. Uh, yeah. Wow, so you got to be a kid for an extended period of time. Yeah, well, yeah, I've been accused of that up to now, too, actually. <laughs> but, uh, well, good for you. <laughs> which is, yeah, not, not a, what is that? I grow old, but I'll never grow up. But, uh, and I think that's part of writing, actually, is is maintaining that wonder at things that stand out in your life as you're looking at them or going through them or hearing them or whatever. Here again, just as an example, the poem Impotence, or did I put that in or not? I might might be speaking out of turn here. I guess another one from that period that is in here, though, that I've always enjoyed was at Pete's Hut, which I hope is in here as well. Okay, it looks like that one's not in here either. I I have to admit, I held back on a number of pieces, mostly because most journals don't like publishing work that's already been published. And so there were a few pieces, and those were two of them that uh, it looks like I did not include them here. I'm sort of holding on to them, hopefully, for a future book, Mm -hmm. uh, which actually I'm working on. Well, I just sent one, a a small chapbook. I'm working, actually, on two small chapbooks. Well, one's done. I I just submitted it for a contest. We'll see how it goes. And the other one, I have an interest from it. It actually was a chapbook that won a competition, which I called it Music Speaks, which is based on the Hans Christian Andersen quote about when, when writing fails, music speaks. And... Going off the notes and letters, of course, it's you know a big thing with me, and that shows up in this book is the influence of music and the effect of music and musicians. And I submitted it for a local or regional uh, chapbook competition, and I, and I was able to win that one, which is nice. And, but I said, you know what, I'd like to redo this and revamp it into something a little more polished with actual pictures. So I'm in the process of finishing that up now, and there's a, a publisher in England that's interested in looking at that one. And I also, I'm sort of going on a tear with the poetry at this point, because I also have that memoir of my late wife, which I want to get back to and work on, but I just have the feeling that that's going to take more work than I can give it right now. 
And since my plan is I'm pretty much relegated to I'm going to be retiring in February from my jobs, and I'll have the time to, to devote to that. So right now, because the poetry is more prepared and more ready, you know, I'm sort of focusing on that. Did you use the term chat book? Yeah, chat book. What is that? Well, they're smaller, like 20 to 30 pages long. Okay. Yeah, so I've got the two of them out now. or Well, the one is out, which I called This Just In. Yeah, because it's funny, lately... Now, if you read some of my stuff, you'll know that I'm not that tied into form and structure normally. And what I've been trying to do lately is sort of force myself to do that and, and writing like different types of poetic structures, sonnets, odes, madrigals, things of that nature. The other thing I've gotten hooked into lately, there's a uh, website out of Canada uh, Ekphrastic Review, which runs a contest every few weeks, and I've been sending stuff to her quite regularly, and I've had some success. You know, some of them hit, some of them miss, where she provides a painting. And I like that idea so much that I came up with this. It's called This Just In, A Poetic Journal of News Stories, Fake and Otherwise. Uh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and and it goes well with, with the concept of creative nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But what I'm doing is about, I don't know, half of them, I have the illustrations that go with the piece. And uh, so we'll see how that goes. I mean, like I say, I just sent it off yesterday. The, the results will come out at the end of, either the end of August, beginning of September. But I'm hoping that one does well, you know, and gets accepted. If not, then I'll try and market it elsewhere, because... I secured permission from all the artists or photographers to use their work. And here again, the same thing with the new music collection. I'm making sure that I have the rights to, to reproduce the, the artwork. And some of it's photography, some of it's painting, that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm sort of going on a tear in the poetry vein for the moment, just with the intention of, okay, once I wrap up my career as a college instructor, then I'm going to get back to a lot of the more extended pieces, a novel I had started, the, the memoir I wrote, uh, which I don't even know if it's going to be a memoir anymore. We'll have to see. But uh, they all need a lot of work. And like I say, more work than I think I can devote to it when I'm working, grading, that kind of thing. And then also taking care of my son, which, you know, he's also a priority for me. Yes, and you, you write about him in a couple of the poems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's a major part of my life, or our lives, I should say. But yeah, I, I'm really grateful to the Finishing Line Press for taking this and turning it into reality, and, and they've sort of given me the nudge, I think, to, to start working on some other things. Well, that's wonderful, and also wonderful that you're at a turning point or, or approaching a turning point in your life where you can really completely devote yourself to this. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny, um, because like I say in this book, in the introduction, I say, yeah, I came to this very late in the game. I mean, I wrote, and I always enjoyed writing, but I never did it seriously. I mean, you know, I kept notes, I kept journals, things of that nature. But I say for the most part, after I got out of high school, I spent my time in the Navy. And then after I got out of the Navy, I spent most of that time, like I say, at shipyards, 
but also because of that kind of work, the very nature of it is you get laid off and you have to go for months without a job. And so I'd end up, whatever, bartending, drive, drove cabs for a while, drove Coca-Cola trucks, things like that, which actually I think is a great way to get material. <laughs> yeah, I agree. The last poet I interviewed, which was just uh, a few weeks ago, also had an interesting life in that same sort of way. He was a commercial fisherman okay. yeah. Oh, God, yeah. on the West Coast, and he did some light truck driving, and he incorporated some of that into his poetry as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely there. For example, I'm looking now, this Pictures at Five was not out of my life, but it was out of one of my best friend's lives, whose son was a Marine. Well, he's still in, I'm not sure, actually. But uh, we were talking one night, and, you know, he mentioned this phone call he'd gotten from his son, and that led to this piece, uh, this Pictures at Five, about him having his life threatened while he was over in uh, Riyadh, I believe. And Clarence, which is also in the first book, Notes and Letters, I've always said that's you know, probably my first real love poem because I dated this guy's granddaughter. So I never actually met him, but she told me stories about him and showed me this newspaper article that had been written about him. I was like, this guy is such a riot. I mean, you know, people have to meet this guy. <laughs> and all these what people might call secondhand experiences become a part of our own lives. Oh, yeah, yeah, hopefully, yeah. One of the nicest things I, I really loved was I had a couple of guys from I went to high school with who picked up the book, you know, as a favor to me. And I think one of the things I really enjoyed hearing from one of them was that, yeah, this is not an academic book. It, it's something that everybody goes through and everybody can identify with. You know, you don't have to be trained in literature, you know, to follow it. Mm-hmm. Which I, I like that. I, you know, and that's one of the things, in fact. Christian Golson, who is one of the guys who gave me a blurb on the book, and, and as a writer I've known probably since 89, I guess, and I always loved what he said. One time he said, you know, I would rather have the cleaning lady enjoy my writing than the academic, because there are more cleaning ladies than there are academics. <laughs> uh-huh. So I'm curious, with your poetry, would you say that, because you... You talk about writing creative nonfiction. I'm wondering how much to use this, you know, perhaps overly cliched term. Do you take much in the way of poetic license when you're when you're writing these memoirish poems? Um, you know what? Not really. I, I don't think so. Obviously, there's some things I project, and I, I, I said like Washington Street and. The uh, Easter Island and Koreatown are actually many images I saw in different places, but they all fit together and formed a whole piece. You know, for example, Washington Street actually came out of, I was on a city bus one time, and I saw this young girl who was obviously very religious. She had a Bible in her hand and very dressed up. And meanwhile, there was some guy who, you know, blue-collar worker, you know, a lot of ink, uh, <laughs> and almost the complete opposite of what she seemed to be. And he was working on picking her up. 
And I was like, this is really weird because I think even if he gets to spend time with her, she's probably not going to be interested in what he's interested in. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, who knows? But, you know, I saw that image and then realized yeah, I'm on the city bus. And this was actually in Baltimore. And it was on Washington Street. But that's sort of what led to the opening stanza of, you know, it is always, it seems, an inner-city street lined with their warehouses accentuated by cinder block projects too concrete to induce dreams. Yeah, it just seems like, yeah, this is not a place where people get to achieve their dreams a whole lot. So, And when I say a lot of the images in that poem come out of other fragments that I saw elsewhere along the line, but in similar situations. And I've, I've lived most of my life in big cities. I'm from New York and course in LA now and you know even in Florida I was in Jacksonville which is probably the biggest city they have there yeah Washington Street is always an inner city street it's it's always in the very urbanized low-income areas it is funny that anytime I'm in a big city if it's Washington Street it's probably you know in a really depressed area of town mm. where Broadway tends to be in the high-end area so I'm wondering if it's time for you to read a poem. Sure. To, to kind of that. pick a direction to go in. Yeah, and let's see. Um, I don't know, any requests? <laughs> well, I have a list here that I can sure. fall back on, but I, I want to give you the chance to... Well, one of my favorites that I love, whenever I do a reading, I, I love opening with this, and it's one of the first poems I wrote when I started writing seriously. And it's called Some Notes of a Religious Nature. Oh, I love that one. And it, it, it is a great opening one because it's so short, and yet it has a lot of impact for oh, such, thanks, a, thanks. such a short poem. Yeah, that's always what I hope for. But anyhow, so here it is for those who've never heard it. So it's called Some Notes of a Religious Nature. Jesus was sent to die for our sins, like some package from UPS. He delivered the goods to humanity, and we delivered him back to heaven. Battered, beaten, mutilated, some creation we turned out to be. I just love that. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember this from the last time, that I also especially enjoy the way you read your own poetry. Oh, thanks, thanks. It's funny because... Actually, I, I have a writing group that we meet once a week in town here, and yesterday is, you know, we meet every Wednesday at lunch. And I had a new piece, and you know what? I want somebody else to read it for a change instead of myself, because I want to hear how somebody coming to it brand new would interpret it and would read it. And I think I'm going to start doing that more and more with the poems, because that gives me an idea of, I know how I want it to sound, but how is it going to sound going through somebody else's mind or, or voice or whatever? I'm now regretting that I didn't print out some of the poems that, oh. <laughs> so that I could read them. I, I have one poem here that I've printed out. It's a short one, but I'm not ready to read it just yet because I'm not oh. sure we're, we're, we're at that point or ready for okay. that. But, but when I'm reading your poems... I read them as if I'm reading them out loud. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's funny because I, I don't know if I mentioned this before. One of the things I always say to my lit students is that 
poetry is both an oral and an oral art. And it's oral in O-R-A-L, and it's meant to be said, and oral and it's A-U-R-A-L, meant to be heard. And, yeah, I think that's probably also like to mention, why do you think poetry books are so short? They're not meant to be read once and put aside. They're meant to be, you know, I think it was Wayne Dodd said, you know, chewed and digested. Right. I mean, even to read two poems in a row could be too much. <clears throat> yeah, and I, I think a good poem should work that way. It's kind of like a good movie or a good book. You want to go back to it again and again. And you want time to think about it without mm-hmm. being being sidetracked by something else. Yeah, yeah, if possible, yeah. It's funny, too, because I believe it was Donald Justice, and he said once that a good poem should appear cinematic. That's a good way of looking at it. Well, that's something that I really particularly enjoy about your poetry. Oh, thanks. You do that. So, so that just now that you you mentioned that, I can see that you're thinking about that. Yeah, I am trying to, and, and it's interesting because one of the women in my writing group, she does YA novels and that sort of thing. She asked me, she says, well, how long do you spend on a poem? I said, typically, probably all told about three or four hours. And she kind of threw her head back and looked a little shocked. I said, yeah, I mean, you, know, you try it in different ways, and, you know, you rearrange things, and I'll sometimes have three, four, or five verses of the same thing, and which one works best? And sometimes they don't work at all. I had a poem, well, it's not a poem any longer, but I had written this piece when I was in Puerto Rico. My wife's cousin, we went to visit him. He was up in the mountains of the island, in the center of the island. And it was like stepping into a Garcia Marquez novel. I mean, it's a very strange place this guy lived, and the way he lived. And I loved the images, so I started writing them down, and I... I wrote it into several different poems, and every time I wrote it, I was like, this is just not working. And finally I said, you know, it's just not a poem. That's all there is to it. So I took the images and I incorporated them into a short story I had written. And it worked at that point, you know, setting up the character of the story by showing this guy's house. Was this in El Yunque? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, he wasn't there, but he, he was right across from it. Mm-hmm. You could look at from his front yard. In fact, my wife and I, that's where we got married, was on his property. But it was funny because I kept trying to force it into something that it just wasn't working in. And then there's been some things where I go, oh, I should write this up. And I go, oh, it works better as a poem. Well, let's try it that way. Mm-hmm. So let's see. Maybe I'll throw up the top poem from my list. Okay. And it was one that, as I was reading it, as if I was reading it out loud, that I really enjoyed the experience of reading it, you know, using what felt like the right meter for me. Okay. (laughs) And it's Apologia. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. That's sort of my nod to Milton in many ways, because when he wrote, Paradise Lost, of course, one of the conversations that comes up is when the devil says, hey, you need me here. Uh, (laughs) Without me, you got nothing. Okay, so it's called Apologia, which, of course, in Greek, an apology or apologia is just a justification for. And first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. 
I, a fallen spirit, made a forced exit. Ultimate love for him led to this downfall, this condition of torment I now lead. Heaven, then, was ageless, changeless, forever and eternal, as I was. Still am. The law was laid down ages before man, before altars, before temples or churches, before the writing of law itself. Then that first commandment was altered and given to mankind. Trivial creatures created out of ego, then possessed by it. It is ego, not knowledge, that is original sin. Remember this, before you were, that command stood for all, animals, plants, even angels. But when clay and dust were mixed with the breath of life to become an imposter of their creator, then even angels were told, kneel before men. Now my temptations serve as testimony to man's worthlessness, proving his Bible and God's own words correct. The torture of souls is only an afterthought, only reciprocity of torment. For my refusal to bow, I suffer now, as do you. My guest is Bill Cushing. He's a poet and professor of writing in L.A., and he's the author of two collections of poetry, Notes and Letters and A Former Life. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. So it's, it's sort of a message from the devil. Is, yeah, this is the deal. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's quite a complicated poem in a, in a way. Oh, thanks, thanks. And, yeah, there was so much in it that it was a lot of fun to read. Thanks, thanks. Even if I was wondering, what were you thinking? Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I wrote a short story years ago that was called The Bargain. And it got published, I don't know if you know, the Borsky Press Review. No. Uh, it's a couple out of Virginia. They they run, I guess, four issues so far, four volumes. About once a year, they come out with an anthology. And I was able to land that short story in their inaugural issue. And it was funny because I wrote it based on every time I read a story about making a deal with the devil, it seems like the devil always loses somehow. And I'm like, you know, he's just not that bad a businessman. Uh, <laughs> how come people keep outsmarting the devil? And it's like, I don't think so. So I wrote this story, and I originally wrote it in school. And it was interesting because when I wrote it, it was a couple, and the guy makes the deal with the devil. And then when the girlfriend tries to walk out on the relationship, something keeps happening to her that keeps her there. And they become increasingly more violent. And my instructor said, you know, this is a good story. The only problem is you have female mutilation going on in here, and that's going to upset a lot of people. And I said, look, to me it's irrelevant who is in what place. The idea of the story is you don't make a deal with the devil and they could get to renege on it. He gets what he wants. And so I just reversed the genders and had the girlfriend make the deal with the devil and the guy you know, getting the short end of the stick each time, although both of them really are. And it worked. I was like, okay, great. You know, yeah, I wasn't even thinking in those terms when I wrote it. 
you know, when I was doing my undergrad work, one of the women who was in several of my classes, she said, God, religion figures in pretty heavily in your stuff. Are you religious? I said, well, no, I'm really not, but that's really good material <laughs> for writing. <laughs> and when you think of it, it's the original material for writing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm not at all religious, mm -hmm. and yet I find these these kind of archetypal issues to be fascinating. Oh, it is. And, and I, I don't mean to downgrade religion. I think it's very important to a lot of people. My wife is very religious, and, and we are raising our son that way, and I, I have no problem with it. In fact, I would say it's, it's not so much the religion as it is the church that bothers me. But it is funny, because I, I was raised, my dad, now my mother was religious, but my dad was, he was an out-and-out -out atheist. I mean, he wouldn't even concede to the possibility. <laughs> Which was interesting, because one of, the, one of the stories I always loved about him was, my father was an engineer, and after World War II, Italy was in such a bad state that they hired a bunch of American engineers to go over there and, and help them out. This is back in the mid to late 50s. And so my dad was one of the guys who got to go, and he said, he said, oh, they treated us like rock stars over there. I mean, you know, we could do no wrong. If you were an engineer in Italy from America, you know, they just worshipped you. And they did get an audience with the Pope, who I guess was in the 50s was John, I guess. I'm trying to remember who the Pope was at that time. But at any rate, you know, they get to go visit the Vatican and meet the Pope themselves. And the Pope gave them all a plenary indulgence. And I always laughed at that. I said, the guy who doesn't believe in heaven has a free ticket in. <laughs> <laughs> as, if, as if the Pope could actually give yeah, anybody well, such yeah. a thing. <laughs> yeah, but, uh... but I guess, I guess for people who are, who are really devoted to their religion, particularly mm -hmm. that one, that would be meaningful to them. Oh, it is. Uh, absolutely. And, and in fact, he enjoyed using that at times because... Uh, he got into an argument one time with a, a, a Catholic priest, and the priest says, well, none of us really knows where we're going. He says, well, I do. I got a free pass from your boss. <laughs> yeah. How many people can say that? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, Especially atheists. Yeah. <laughs> he may be the only one in the world. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he was an interesting character. And, uh, that's, you know, I, I want to get back to him, too. I mean, he does show up and. And it is funny because even in my work that involves my mother, my dad always shows up. I mean, he's probably the biggest figure in my life, you know, for good or for ill. But he was an interesting character. It's also kind of funny because the guy who actually, and I do give him credit in the book, is being the one who really got me back into this was one of my former English instructors is now a deacon in the... Uh, is he, I think he's in the Ukrainian Catholic Church, but he's now a deacon and deeply religious. And he and I, you know, we, we still contact each other and talk and, you know, write emails back and forth. And here again, looking at writing, I always tell my students, like, if you're looking at American writing, you cannot get away from the religious aspect of it. Even if you're rejecting it, it's still there. <laughs> because you, the very act of rejection acknowledges that the thing exists on some level. So, you know, I, I even have a poem that's not in here, and I'm still sort of working on it. It's a, a piece that I titled Feeling Judas, and it sort of plays off of those times in our lives when we feel that 
we're sort of betraying somebody, but we're really not. We, we think we're doing the right thing. And so it's these instances in my life where I was like, I really regretted what I had to do, but I felt I had to do it at the time. So he shows up there again. And, you know, the Kareem poem, which was always one of my favorites. Or did I not put that in there? I'll see it here. I'll, I thought I'd put that in there, but maybe I hadn't. But it's a poem I wrote about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And I always enjoyed that piece because I wrote it as part of a college workshop class I was taking. And the instructor insisted that you presented the work and then you could not defend or answer or respond to any of the other critiques. You had to let everybody else go through it. Well, at the end of the poem, I talk about how his art of basketball was so great. And the, the closing line is that it may have even surpassed resurrections, <laughs> which I knew would you know, get under the skin of a number of people, and, and it did. All through the class, people kept saying, oh, you know, I'm really uncomfortable with this. You know, I, I don't think this should be here because you're equating a basketball player to, you know, rising from the dead. And, and, of course, I couldn't say anything. And it finally gets around to this one guy who was a little younger than me, but he just looks at me and goes, did any of you ever see Kareem play? And they all went, well, no. He says, yeah, it was pretty damn good. <laughs> I got no problem with that last line <laughs> because watching Jabbar play was a religious experience for many of us. <laughs> but uh, anyhow. So another theme in your poetry is about aging. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, and here it ties in with the former life. Exactly. I mean, we look back and exactly. Not realize. to not to mention that you started late. Yeah. 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 But, uh, yeah, it's funny. I When I went to my 40th high school reunion, I remember we were staying at a hotel, and, of course, for us, they had these little lapel pins that we could wear with our name and our class year and, and have to, our yearbook picture. And I remember I was getting in the hotel, you know, we were going to the room, and there was a couple of women on the elevator with us, and one of them looked at the picture and said, was that you? I said, yeah, about 40 years and 60 pounds ago, Yeah. <laughs> He ain't around anymore. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that is a big thing. And, and I think probably the one that I think reflects that the most is upon turning 50. Why don't you which, go ahead and read that? Because that's on my... 50. Yeah, yeah, that one's on my list. Okay, great. I, My list is fairly long. Okay. <laughs> so this is turning 50. If you've done life right, you do not feel or even see the years coming until they have long passed. One day you look down and see the hands of an older man, gnarled, blunt, corded with venular ropes of age. The lines on the face in the mirror seem as if they had been there always. Now you understand how far the distance from the start actually is. The body has not yet betrayed, but it's well on its way, and you know that the fight has begun. By the way, an added note, now that I'm approaching 70, the betrayal is in full force. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm in, in between. I'm, I'm 61. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm noticing these things and feeling, oh, yeah, and yeah. feeling these things. 
Well, one of the things I've, I've told friends lately, I said, you know, I used to be able to stay up late at night, and I, I could get by on three hours sleep, maybe four at the most. Now, I'm sorry, I need a full night. And the worst part is, if I stay up late, I can no longer sneak to bed because my wife hears every bone cracking as I walk into the room. <laughs> I'm a whole lot noisier now than I was, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And here again, that ties in with the former life, you know, the whole image of... And that poem itself actually came out of seeing that, you know, a young boy riding a bicycle. And when I looked at him, I saw the, the, the John Fox I mentioned, which is kind of funny because, you know, it's such a popular name, uh, you know, that... Uh, People sometimes think I'm talking about there's a football coach, I think, or a baseball manager named John Fox. I said, no, no, it's not him. It was a guy who grew up down the street from me. And, and when I saw that kid riding the bike, I was thinking of John Fox, and that's what led to that poem of flashing back, having images of your childhood show up, even though, well, at that point I was, you know, a thousand miles away and, you know, 40 years beyond it or 30-something years beyond it. This might be the the right time for me to read the poem that I oh, okay. actually printed out. Okay. Just in case. And it's titled Allison. Oh, that's from the segment. When you say the segment, what do you That's out of the suicide notes? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. Okay. And suicide notes is on my list as well cuz you write about death and things like that as well. It, this collection is chock full of <laughs> of you know the hard things in life. Mhm. Mm and I think that's yeah one of the things that I don't think I'm a pessimist. I I like to think I'm a realist when it comes to that sort of thing. And of course I think part of it is having lost a wife at a very young age. You know, she was only 42 when she passed away and that really brought that stuff into focus for me. It's like, yeah, we we are counting down. But anyway, yeah, go ahead. And I, I want to reaffirm what you just said. I don't get any pessimism from you at all. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's really, it, as you say, it's really just the sense of realism. You, mm -hmm. you acknowledge these, these elements of life. And that's, yeah, that's what I hope that other people will do. And just before you read that, when it comes to the issue of suicide, and, and I have been connected to it and that I know people who have, if not tried it, at least contemplated it, and I gotta say, I don't remember a time in my life where I ever seriously thought of ending my life. And maybe it ties into, I think this may be my only shot, and I don't want to blow it <laughs> by making you know that one decision, which you can never take back. And the piece you picked, of course, delves into that. Why don't you go ahead and read it? Then? Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and read it. And then there's a couple other poems that you could read. Okay. You know, on this topic of death and suicide after that. So, Allison. Old enough for anguish, yet too young to see other options. How easy sometimes to forget life's most difficult choices are often the best. But the choice is yours. Life may be boring, terrifying, or trite. But above all, one must stay alive. Hardest job on the earth. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. And I, I hope people get that. And 
I don't know if this ruins the poem or not for some people, but Allison was actually a young lady who, when I was in community college, and here again, I'm 37, 38 at this point, and she was probably in her 20s, and she did. She attempted suicide. She disappeared for a few weeks, and we found out later. And I was like, my God, you're, you're 21, 22 years old. You know, I, I don't get it. I mean, to a degree, I do. I mean, obviously, she had something going on that was really screwing with her head. And it is interesting, especially with suicide among younger people, which, of course, I guess that's the largest segment, is the teenagers. And I think the problem is, and it's the one thing that you can never get through to a teenager, is that, look, how you feel right now at this moment is not how you're going to feel the rest of your life. I think a lot of younger people just go into it, you know, when I get really depressed, this is going to be the rest of my life. No, it's not. (laughs) And actually, I got that lesson very early on. I was like 15 or 16 and learned it not through any great depression, but being rejected by some girl I wanted to go out with. And, you know, I I got so mad, I started hitting a tree with my fists. And I guess after about three or four minutes when the adrenaline wore off and the pain started setting in, I was like, you know, this is not the best way to solve this problem. (laughs) Maybe I ought to look at another option. And here again, I don't pretend to understand clinical psychology and the nature of depression. I mean, academically I can, but, you know, in reality, there's, there's no way I can ever understand that. But that was sort of my hope with this poem, that people will look at it and go, yeah, there are always other options. And that opening line is so to the point, mm. old enough for anguish, yet too young to see other options. Yeah, and that was, yeah, I'm hoping that's the lesson that people would walk away with from that piece. Because, yeah, I, I don't take it lightly. Because it is reality. I mean, it, it, people do this. And, and it's just I myself could never wrap my head around it. And remember I mentioned earlier, when I was younger, I live on two, three hours sleep. I didn't even like sleeping. <laughs> like, my feeling was always, hey, there's a party going on somewhere, and I'd like to be part of it. So let's go check things out. And here again, that former life comes into play. It's like, yeah, now I do need a full night's sleep. Now I do need to take it easy and not doing the stuff I used to do. But it's interesting because overall, I kind of see my life's been pretty good. I mean, not that there haven't been, you know, downslides and some really bad decisions here and there. And you've had a lot of major challenges in your life and tragic circumstances. Yeah, and but it's kind of funny because I don't think my life is that much different from most people's. One of the things that was funny was when our son was born, of course, Gabriel had so many problems, I mean, both physically mentally all over the place. And I remember my wife once saying, you know, that, man, you got me through this. I said, well, look, my sister had Down syndrome. I've been with disabled kids all my life. So, you know, my view was always, look, you know, it can get worse. And I got to tell you, one of the things that struck me, Gabriel had to spend about three weeks in the neonatal ICU. And I looked at some of those kids, and I was like, man, we're lucky, okay? <laughs> I am not going to complain, because some of those cases were really brutal. So, yeah, I've never really felt, I mean, yeah, you know, losing my wife to cancer was a tough thing, and, you know, I, I'm I'm sorry it happened, but I'm glad I got to spend the time I did with her, and that was, to me, the upside of it. Mm-hmm. 
In fact, I, I've always said that maybe that was my job in her life was to exit her out, you know. But anyway, it is funny because, yeah, I've been through some tough stuff, but I don't think any worse than most people. And reflecting back on your son, Gabriel, mm-hmm. one of the poems on my list is What Love Is. What Love Is. Because <laughs> I think it's appropriate to at least wrap that up. Oh, sure. And that's funny because that poem actually started as one thing, and then I turned it into the sonnet. But really, i got to give credit, and I'm going to give a shout-out to Julie Cushing, who is the daughter of a very distant cousin of mine. And Julie is probably about a year younger than Gabriel. And I guess it was her junior year when her mom put this picture up of Julie, and very cute girl, and, and, I, and I looked at her and I said, you know, Gabriel's never going to ask somebody like you out on a date, because it just doesn't occur to him, and you know, it's not part of his thinking, it's not part of his life, besides which, of course, you got all the physical infirmities, which means there's going to be very few girls chasing him around, and so that's what kind of led to this, was, you know, that this was sort of letting him know in my own way, I mean, obviously he's I'm not going to read it or know it or anything like that. But, hey, I'm sorry you ended up this way. What can I tell you? So anyhow, what love is. We don't see the twists and bends in the road of life as we make our blind way. Yet still, when we're there, we learn to shoulder its load. I found I didn't know real love until I was bound to raise a broken child who was given this, not a life he chose. Seeing him in bed, I am reconciled to arms and legs forming a sprinter's pose, splayed in action never to be taken, a serene child who will never know romantic affection that yet will take in sincere love he will spread and cause to grow. The lump in my throat is not some tumor. It's the prime pulse of my heart's tremor. And then there's a line in another one of your poems about uh-huh. about him, about the effect that he had. Oh, yeah, that he, I think he created the family, is the line. That, right, he wasn't a burden on the family. He created the, the family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I've said that for a long time. You know, there is going to be a point where we're going to have to let him go, and it's going to be heartbreaking as hell, but, you know, it's going to be for his benefit eventually. But, yeah, it is interesting because my wife and I have bonded in a whole different way since his birth. He's been an interesting blend. And the way you respond to these challenges is I see you responding in the way that that some people do who see it as a new kind of choice or Mm -hmm. a new kind of option to, in a sense, renew one's love of life. Mm, An appreciation Mm -hmm. of what is and what's possible and not to, in a sense, the way some people tend to take it personally, Mm -hmm. like being like a victim. Right, exactly. And and that's one of the things, and once again, I did write this up as a prose piece, but one of the things that drives me crazy is when people find out about Gabriel's conditions. Well, you know... You had him for, you know, he was your child for a reason. I said, well, yeah, the reason is those genetics grew up. It's, it's 
somehow we carry the recessive trait of this condition, and he was the one in four chance or whatever. By the way, I do have to say this. When we got the latest diagnosis, which was only a few months ago, when we sat down with the new genetics guy, he explained it to us. And one of the things he said during the course of the conversation was, well, this is an X-linked chromosomal defect. And I immediately just turned to my wife and said, well, this one's on you. (laughs) I ain't taking the heat on this one. (laughs) I was like, okay, fine. But although the doctor said, well, to be fair, though, if you provided an X, maybe it would have counterbalanced her. Okay, fine. Uh, I got to take some of the heat. But I will say this, and one of the upsides for me is when most people have kids, as soon as they become teenagers, and I was this way, you want to get away from your parents as soon as you can. Mm-hmm. And I've never had that. Gabriel is devoted to both of us. And that's a real upside to me. Not that there's never any argument, obviously. He wants to do things and we won't let him and that kind of thing. But there's never this you know, anger or anything like that that we have to endure, which a lot of people have to go through. And it's, you know, that's got to be heartbreaking in its own way. Yeah, I I can say I was extremely difficult for my father. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he, you know, he was a single father for a long time. Oh, and and yeah. I just made it, you know, doubly hard for him. Yeah, the challenge was, let's see how we can make life more difficult. <laughs> well, it's funny. One of the stories I remember with my dad is I got in trouble in high school for something. And, you know, he got me and he said, you know, he said, this is like the second time this has happened. He says, I don't know what to do with you. He says, I was thinking, do I punish you? Do I talk to you? He says, but I'm thinking, well, this is the second time it's happened. So either you didn't learn from the first time, or you're getting away with it enough times that it's worth the risk. (laughs) What the hell am I going to (laughs) say? I was like, okay, I can hang with that. He sounds pretty understanding. In a way, yeah. He he had, I mean, I'm here again, armchair diagnosing here, but I think he probably had Asperger's because he was very demanding. And one of the things, my sister and I were talking about this, after his death is that one of the problems he had with most people was that things seemed to come so naturally to him he couldn't understand why other people couldn't accomplish things I mean, we're talking about a guy who when he went to italy you know had to go over there sat down with a bunch of if you remember the old burlitz language institute mm-hmm. he sat down with some of their records and in about two and ten, three weeks taught himself italian i was like yeah how many people could do that <laughs> So he was fully prepared when he went over there. And, you know, there were so many things he did. I'm like, you know, the problem is you think everybody can do this, and not everybody can. Not everybody's got this focus and and this, you know, intensity that you've got. Uh, So it made for some interesting times, (laughs) so to speak. And we even had a big falling out for a long time and then, you know, eventually got back together. It's interesting to me because I think that the one day we really connected was after my mom had died. And I think a lot of it was that I had finally shared an experience with my dad because he knew, okay, you know, my son lost his wife. I just lost mine. Now we've got a real connection that, you know, that to him was real, which was interesting because, yeah, our relationship really changed after that. And you you write about that in one of your poems. Oh, yeah, the Father's Day poem, which is actually a true story. It was interesting. My mom had something called organic brain syndrome, which is not Alzheimer's per se, but replicates a lot of the conditions there. 
And so I kept calling my dad and saying, look, you know, when can we come visit you? Because he was on the East Coast, I was out here. And he kept going, well, you know, your mom's not in the best shape. It's not the best time. And finally I called him and said, look, I'm coming just by myself. I said, I, I want to see mom. I know she's not going to know who I am. I know she's probably going to be aware that I'm there, but I just want to be there. And he said, fine, come on ahead. And so we went, and, you know, I spent that weekend there. That was the Father's Day weekend of '04, And came back Sunday night, and then Wednesday I got the call for my sister. Mom passed away. I said, well, I'm glad I took the trip because at least I got to see her one more time before she passed away. Do you want me to read that one, or...? Well, it's about time for you to read another poem. Okay. And it's, it's about as romantic as my dad, I think, ever got. Uh, <laughs> anyhow, so it's Father's Day, June 20th, 2004. I watched my mother die over days, eyes sealed shut, glazed with a crust of time, occasional sounds, pantomiming conversation, breathing barely there and marked with wearied effort. Hands sprout from two thin and shriveled arms, laying wherever placed, her legs scabbed from the falls of her last conscious moments. My father, the martial stoic, sits beside her, leans into her, and whispers in her ear, it's okay to go, if you wish, telling her, I'm ready. In a half century of life, I had never seen such tenderness. His age mottled hands stroke shallow cheeks. A half-finger brushes back brittle hair. And while it took three days to complete on this Father's Day, my father inclined to give my mother the gift of dying. So that came out of that trip. And maybe this would be a good time to read Final Flight. Oh, okay. Which uh, I really like a lot. Oh, thanks so much. By the way, side note, my dad was a, uh, like I say, he was an electrical engineer. He was also a fire inspector or an arson inspector for the New York Fire Department. He couldn't become a fireman because he had polio as a kid, but he latched onto him and worked with him for years. And he was actually one of the investigators of the 93 bombing when the guy tried it at the parking lot or the parking garage. And so when 9-11 did happen, he was the first call I made. I said, look, did you know any of the guys there that died? He says, yeah. He says, obviously not the younger ones, the actual firefighters, but a couple of battalion chiefs and the captains. Yeah, they were friends of mine, so he did lose some friends in that. Anyway, this is called Final Flight. I slept through those initial collisions, the twin explosions, as steel and fuel met girder and concrete for the final collapse into rock and powder of two towers, meant as monuments to the grandeur of their century. I saw it from a safe distance, not living through events except for my own recall. I can still note those, retrieve the day, but the singular image I cannot shed, the one that refuses to leave my head, is that of those people, the 200 left who, facing the option of burning alive, knowing at that moment they were indeed dead, chose instead, like Icarus, to spread their arms in almost welcome embrace of the quarter-mile journey back to Earth. So that's probably my biggest memory, though, of watching that video of those people jumping and thinking, 
well, I probably would have joined them. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about that too. And that last line is such a powerful image. Thanks, thanks. My guest is Bill Cushing. He's a poet and professor of writing in L.A., and he's the author of two collections of poetry, Notes and Letters and A Former Life. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. Here again, playing off the title, the World Trade Centers were 20th century buildings. They went down in the 21st, right at the beginning. And it's interesting because there's a bit of irony here. I was teaching a lit course at the time, and I remember talking to my students, and there's a particular poem by Liza Mueller that I love using in my lit classes, because she has a line where she talks about Hitler and says, well, he's not romance, he's not yet history. And I, I said, so why is he not yet history? Well, the answer is because she lived through that. She was a German Jew who did get out of Germany in time, but certainly grew up you know, with that whole thing going on. I said, for you guys, Hitler is history. For her, it's memory. And that's what not yet history is. And I said, you know, just like for me, the assassination of JFK is memory. For you, it's history. Well, that was right before the 9-11 event. And we came back in for the next class. I said, well, you guys just had your moment. There you go. <laughs> you will always remember where you were, what you were doing, everything about that. It's imprinted on your brain for good. So, yeah, I've always said that is probably one of the defining moments, at least at the start of this century. Like the JFK killing, it's one of those things where people who were anywhere older than, I'd say, 13 or even 12, they can probably remember everything about it. Were you older than 12 or 13? With uh, Kennedy, I was, I was in sixth or seventh grade. Okay. It was one of those events where it didn't really impact me, but I noticed all the adults around me were, like, freaking out. I'm like, man, this must be some pretty heavy. So that would have been, what was that, 63, so I would have been 11 or 12 at the time. You know, I was old enough to recall it, certainly, and then you know, I remember, hey, you're all going home, and, you know, this just happened, and watching, you know, the woman driving us home just in tears the whole time. I'm like, geez, what's going on? Yeah, I remember it, but here again, yeah, 9-11, that's a pretty impactful moment. Yeah, but I think JFK's assassination was, in a sense, the United States losing its virginity. Well, that's, yeah, yeah. And by the way, to that end, I, I would recommend Jim Carroll. I don't know if you can find this on YouTube, but he does a great bit about that, America losing its innocence, which is actually very funny, but, uh, you know, even though it shouldn't be, but he did a routine... I have it on cassette, actually. He's talking about how he finally decides to masturbate on the afternoon that Kennedy's killed. <laughs> and his mother catches him. <laughs> He's in the, in the bathroom with the J.C. Penney catalog, you know, turned to the lingerie. <laughs> he says, you know, people say this is the day America lost its innocence. I don't know about the rest of the country, but it's the day I sure did. <laughs> that's, that's pretty funny. Yeah, it's in bad taste, but it is it is very funny. Well, I'm one of those who thinks that humor is sacred. Oh, yeah, yeah. But anyway, just as a final plug, of course, I hope people will check out this book. It is on Amazon now. 
And it's a former life. Yeah, called a former life, and uh, an overview, subtitle, like you say, an overview of, of two centuries, two centuries, sixty years in the making. I, I feel like I'm finally catching up here with what I'm supposed to do. So, would you like to go out with a poem? Oh, sure. Why not? And having grown up on the water and by the water, of course, that figures into a lot of my stuff here. But this one has always been one of my favorites. I've always said if there's such a thing as reincarnation, I'd like to put in a request. And this is Pelicans. I like that one, too. Thanks. So, Pelicans. Slowly circling, the pelican drops like a stone into water. Then climbing the air, he stops and, with a single motion of wings, glides on the wind. And that's that one. Mm-hmm. That has the fitting imagery of a farewell as well. Oh, thank you. So, <laughs> so a very apt, good. an apt poem for the end. Okay, thanks. So it's it's been great to talk with you again. Well, yeah, and hopefully maybe I'll be calling to bug you again if any of these other projects pan out. We'll see how it goes. But uh, Sure. Like I say, I, I'm sort of running along doing the poetry stuff as much as I can. Because, like I say, once I hit February and March, I really want to devote myself to the book about my late wife. That's one I really want to get out. And actually, I had started a novel, which I have maybe a quarter done, which I'd like to get back to, too. So I'm going to be veering back into prose quite a bit. But I've, I really enjoyed the poetry, though. It's, it's, it's really been a great vehicle for me. One thing I'm really trying to work on, too, is, I don't know if I mentioned this when we first talked, but I'm actually named after William Barker Cushing, who was a Civil War naval hero, and his brother was Alonzo Cushing, who was an Army war hero during the Civil War and actually died in the Battle of Gettysburg and finally got the Medal of Honor a few years ago. And I'm trying to work on something about, it's called Two Brothers, and it's about their relationship, because the two men were so entirely different and yet so devoted to each other. I mean, William was a wild seed, would go out and do stuff on his own, disobeying orders, all kinds of stuff. Alonzo was very straightforward, very upright, very responsible. So the interesting balance of these two different personalities that were brothers. Sounds like you've got some great material to work with. Yeah, and this is the thing. I was, there's stuff out there all over. One of the things I would love to do, and I don't know if I'll ever get to it, but there's a piece of Puerto Rican history that would be a magnificent piece of writing because they tried their own stand against the Spanish Empire in the 1800s, which it's a very obscure piece of their history. But if you look at it, the parallels between that and, and our own revolution are uncanny. It's just that theirs failed and ours didn't. So I've always said, man, this would be a great... The only problem is I would have to go read all these Spanish documents and, you know, translate them and stuff. I don't know if I can ever get to that, but it's a piece of work that I... Maybe I can get around to it at some point. We'll see how it goes. I'll just have to stick around for another 25, 30 years, that's all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's been a pleasure to talk with you again. Well, yeah, thanks so much for giving me the time again. And maybe we'll do it again. That would be great. I would love it. Be well, and good luck with all all of your writing and new ideas and new projects. Okay, thanks so much. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Bill Cushing.
He's a poet and professor of writing in L.A. at a couple of colleges there, and he's about to retire and devote himself to more writing. And good for him. And he's the author of two collections of poetry, Notes and Letters, A Celebration of Music and Poetry, and most recently, A Former Life, an Overview of Two Centuries, 60 Years in the Making. And in reference to Notes and Letters, A Celebration of Music and Poetry, he collaborated with a friend of his who is a jazz guitarist, and they performed a number of his poems with Bill reading and his friend playing guitar, jazz guitar. And you can find them on YouTube by Googling Bill Cushing and Notes and Letters. And now we're going to hear a piece from that collection. Music isn't about standing still and being safe. Listen, two weeks after you died, a quarter million thronged by the St. John's River to hear the music you had spawned, hoping to see you, but even in death you never looked back. They were all there, Hannibal, Bird, Chick, Jojo, Red, Jocko, Bean, Dizzy, my favorite, Freddie Freeloader. Isolated, you were a beacon, a flagship for messages of the heart. Back to the crowd, unbowed, that proud dance walk announced by muted horn that spoke and broke through all the bull and told us about a place, miles ahead of everyone else. You spent a lifetime thinking for yourself, speaking to every generation, playing it all. Jazz, blues, funk, rock, fusion. Categories took a back seat to creativity and rhythm, space and feeling, spirit. I remember fourth grade picking up a horn, then laying it down. Rock and roll was my world. What did I know? Seven years later, it was in the garden where you brought me back to music. I walked all the way home miles from that train station, my head pounding with sounds frantic fast as the subway I spent the night on, those African rhythms you used decades before anyone else even thought to, filling my head, letting me know I'd have it all down cold if I could walk as cool as the notes you heard coming from miles you had that thing, that style, that spark that was a blue flame jumping off a gas stove, igniting everything everywhere, touching the genetic resonant frequency in all. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, have a wonderful week. For more information, check out wgdr.org.